Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-hosts, developmental psychologist Dr. Marty Erickson and Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist. Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. to Mom Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter Erin and we are so pleased to welcome today's guest. He's been with us numerous times before and as I've told him he is one of my favorite authors and experts in the field of human development. Daniel J. Siegel, uh, Dr. Daniel J. Siegel is a New York Times best-selling author and the founding editor of the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and Executive Director of the Mindsight Institute. Today we're going to be discussing Dan's latest book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. And Dan, I have to tell you, I, I've loved all of your books. We've talked with you before about the uh, the whole brain child. I hope I'm getting the titles right because these are from memory. Uh, parenting from the inside out. No drama discipline. Um, you've just written a, a range of wonderful books, both for professional audiences and for parents and, and uh, general audiences. But this book, I think, is really quite an accomplishment in, in the way it brings together a complex body of research and just makes Makes it so understandable to all of us. So I thank you for writing the book, and I'm very excited that you could make time to help us bring these ideas to our many listeners on Mom Enough. Thanks for that. Oh, my honor. Thank you, Marty, and thank you, Erin. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. Let's start off by just talking a little bit about what this book is about. Can you uh, tell our listeners a bit more? <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, there's... Um an exciting moment I think we have in all the different things that we do, whether it's parenting or working to support parents themselves or understanding how the mind develops, uh, that is to look at what we mean when we say that secure attachment helps promote a healthy mind. And whether we're in those fields or looking at fields like psychotherapy or how you might organize um, an organization or even a government, perhaps, you know, how would you approach creating optimal well-being for people that live within the family, within the organization, within the country? And so looking at the, what the mind is gives us a deep view into how you might do that from a scientific point of view. So that's kind of the, the book is really about what the mind is who we are, what we can do to optimize our mental well-being, and really looks at a deep way of understanding identity. Oh, that's great. And I'm, I'm sure uh, you, like I, are kind of amazed by the explosion of research that has really illuminated uh, what we know about the mind and, and how... Uh, human development unfolds over the years. So uh, I just, I think it's such an exciting time to be delving into these things. Can you tell us a little bit about how specifically your book attempts to do what you said its purpose is? Yes. Well, you know, the first thing to say is that um, it, it's kind of surprising, but 
for those of us who work in, let's say, the field of development and look at how kids' minds develop or people who work in the field of psychotherapy, helping the mind develop, uh, it's surprising, but, um, you know, just it's true. We don't have a definition of the mind. So the first thing I do in the book is say to the reader, you know, let's look at what the mind might be, your mind, my mind, the reader, the writer's mind, and then look at the broad scientific exploration of mental processes like feelings and thoughts and memories. And let's see if we can come up with a way of understanding the mind itself that begins with a definition of the mind that extends it actually beyond what we've been taught in many fields of neuroscience or certainly fields of psychiatry, my field of medicine, for thousands of years, since the time of Hippocrates, we've said the mind is simply brain activity. Mm. Uh, and so the book starts out saying maybe that's an important part of a much bigger story. And what would that larger story be? And so then the, basically it's a journey book. It, it, it takes you as the reader and myself as the writer together in a conversation looking at questions to explore what the mind might really be beyond just brain activity. Mm. So, I mean, would it be too much to ask you then, uh, beyond the mind simply being brain activity, what is the mind? Yeah, no, not too much at all. You know, it's a, it's a very exciting thing. But here's something that came up a long time ago, about 24 years ago, when I brought together developmental scientists, neuroscientists, geneticists, physicists, anthropologists, linguists, sociologists, and we said, let's look at this um, connection between the mind and the brain. And I had to offer them a definition of the mind, which I'll offer you here, which I start the book with, which is that if you say that what happens inside your skull is a very important part of what the mind is, but then also say what happens between a parent and a child the relationship, that that relationship is also a very important part of what the mind is. And then even go to culture, so you say what happens within a society is a very important part of what the mind is. You say, well, what's the common denominator? What's, what's common ground that's shared between culture, connections in relationships, and the cortex, you know, in the brain? And what's shared in common is energy and information flow streams through the connections in the brain and happens right now between you two and me and anyone listening to us. So relationships are the sharing of energy and information flow, and the brain is really this embodied mechanism by which that flow happens inside of us. So then you say, okay, well, that's fine. That's a common ground. What does the mind have to do with it? And then you say, well, well, what would the shared property be of this system of energy and information flow that's both within us, including our brains, and between us, including our one-to-one -one relationships and larger cultural relationships? And then you can say, well, this system is what's called a complex system, and it has, that's a mathematical term, and it has the features that define it as being a complex system. And what that means from a math point of view is that it has emergent properties, properties that arise from the elements of the system. And in this case, we're saying the system is energy 
and the subset of energy called information and how it changes, that's called flow. And one of those properties is called self-organization. So that's a mathematical term. And the proposal is this. Here's one facet of the mind, not the totality of the mind, but, but one important aspect of the mind is this. Here's a definition. The embodied and relational emergent self-organizing process that regulates energy and information flow. And with that definition, you can see that it takes the mind and it, it defines it as a regulatory process, and it shows that it, if you see it as an emergent self-organizing process, it's happening not just in your skull, but throughout your whole body, and not just within the withinness of the body, but between. It happens as energy and information flow is moving between your body and other people, your body and nature, all sorts of things. So this self-organizing process, then, you can say, well, what difference does it make that I've defined it? And the difference is you can then say what a healthy mind is because you can then ask the question, what optimizes self-organization? And the answer is, you differentiate and then you link. That's the mathematical way you optimize self-organization. And so you do this, and that we're just going to name that process integration. And here's the amazing thing. If you look at attachment research, you can basically re-examine secure attachment as an integrated relationship. So it's where you're honoring the child's unique temperament features and unique aspects of their development, and a parent then honors those differentiated ways of being, letting their expectations be understood, but not squashing the kid. That's differentiation. But then you link with a tuned, compassionate communication. So that would be an integrated relationship. And amazingly, with that kind of secure attachment of an integrated relationship, you actually promote integration in the brain. And integration in the brain is the basis of all regulation. So that's why you see emotions are regulated, behavior is regulated, things like that. So in, in short, with this definition of mind, you can actually then predict what a healthy mind is. And now, so far, all the different studies of um, impaired well-being, let's say, in abuse or neglect, those result in impaired integration in the brain. And a recent study by the Human Connectome Project shows that every measure of well-being they could assess was best predicted by how integrated the brain was. So now, 24 years later, we have this, this very large amount of data from research to support, not to prove, but to support the notion that well-being comes from integration, and that can be relational or embodied, and that impairments to integration, whether it's relational or embodied, leads to unhealth. And then you can have a pathway toward trying to bring more integration into the world. Wow. Uh, Does that want, make any sense? Yes, it does. But I, I want... Um to think about our listeners who are, you know, sitting at home listening to this um, with a, uh, an eight-month-old baby or a three-year-old child or whatever, can you give, uh, maybe this is an unfair question for, for such um, big, uh, big concepts when we're talking about such big concepts, but can you give a concrete 
situation and interaction that might occur occur between a young child and a parent in the course of a day and kind of um, use that to exemplify exactly what you're talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to thank you for giving me the space to talk about it. And, you know, the mind book is this deep dive into all the science behind that. I wrote a textbook, uh, you know, mostly for graduate students, but called The Developing Mind, which kind of lays out all the science. And then what I've done over the years is write parenting books, which translate all the very rich and exciting science into examples and stories that are accessible for parents. So the first book, and I'll give an example from that, is Parenting from the Inside Out, which I wrote with my daughter's preschool director, Mary Hartzell. I so love the first that thing to say is in any interaction with your child, if as you listen to this, let's say you have a two-year-old at home, um, just know that the best predictor of how your child becomes attached to you is not so much what happened to you, but how you've made sense of what happened to you. So that's the work of the adult attachment interview. And in Minnesota there, you know, you've had these beautiful studies by... Uh, by yourself and Alan Strofe and other and you know colleagues uh, that have been very instrumental in seeing this power of making sense. Mary Main, who designed the interview in Berkeley, has similar studies, and there's now been over 10,000 subjects that have been published, and another 10,000 that have been studied but not published yet. Um, so we have uh, this great storage of research data that basically says, as you interact with your child, um, if you can take the time to reflect on what your own childhood was like, that even if pretty challenging things happened to you, even abuse, uh, things that are overwhelming and traumatizing, you can resolve that abuse and you can find a way to provide a secure attachment to your child. So here's an example where that integrative process, um, you know, can be blocked. So let's say I've experienced um, uh, some intrusive uh, abuse when I was a young child. And let's say I have not taken the time to reflect on how those experiences impacted my development. And now I have a two-year-old at home. Here would be an example of where my not making sense of my own abuse history and my being flooded with feelings inside of me could make it so I I would not be providing an integrated relationship experience for my two-year-old, and therefore they would be having a non-secure and insecure form of attachment to me. So we'll give that one example, but then we'll also take the same person, me, who's taken the time to reflect on the abuse I had as a kid. I've come to resolve it, and then you'll see I can provide an integrated experience for my child, and therefore, as the research shows, my child will have a secure attachment with me and will be able to be balanced in how they are relating to their own emotions, relating to other people's emotions. They'll have well-being in their life as much as I can provide it with secure attachment. So here's the same person where, one, I become integrated through making sense, but before I make sense of my life, I remain unintegrated because of my past experiences. Mm. Are you ready? 
Yeah, that, that's what I've written about and worked on for decades. And we so there talk you go. So maybe you should talk of, about it, and I'll talk about the science well, of it. No, no, no. I mean, you, you say it so well, and you've you've looked so closely at all of this research and pulled it together. And, you know, we I've talked about it in very simple terms, looking back, moving forward. Um, and it sounds so simple, but I think, you know, how someone comes to be able to reflect on their childhood, whether that's through, you know, the good fortune of finding finding a partner who kind of helps them do that or getting formal therapy or ending up in a, a supportive group or parent education group where that's uh, invited and encouraged, um, you know, is a, is a real key question in terms of how we help parents move forward. But it's such a hopeful message that we don't have to replicate those things that were unhealthy for us and that um, didn't support our own integration, um, we can really break that just by reflecting on it and kind of working it through. And I think that's a hugely hopeful message because we so often fall into thinking that, you know, oh my gosh, we're doomed because A, B, and C didn't happen when we were little kids. But there is potential for change, and that's really encouraging. Absolutely. And I think exactly what you're pointing out is what makes some parents feel very frightened of even thinking about these things because I've, a lot of parents I've worked with, whether it's in, you know, workshops or, you know, friends, friends I know or, you know, other settings, therapy, you know, um, the, the feeling that's expressed is something like exactly like what you're saying, like, look, I don't want to look to my past because I can't change the past. And I have this feeling like it was pretty bad. So... Why should I make myself feel bad because there's nothing I can do to change it? Mm -hmm. So that's a really understandable, you know, position to take. So that's why the work you're doing and the work I've tried to do with these different books is to say, totally get it. We know that people have that feeling. It's really understandable. But here's the beautiful news from the attachment research world. It tells us it is not just what happened to you. It's whether you've taken the time to make sense of what happens to you. And then you go, well, how can that make a difference? So before we get to this example, let me just give you the regrettably positive news. Two fields of study show, one is attachment research, show that, in fact, with this fellow, me, if I took the time to make sense of my trauma and I resolved it, my child will have a secure attachment with me. But if I don't take the time, they're very likely to have an insecure attachment with me. So it's actually not what happened to me that matters. It's whether I've taken the time to make sense of what happened to me. That's number one. That's just research finding that's so inspiring. The second thing is the whole field of, in neuroscience, brain science, what we call neuroplasticity. That is, you can change the structure and function of your brain through experience, and experience means how you direct attention. So if you, just to give a teeny bit of the science before I get into this example, where attention goes is how you direct energy flow, literally with your thoughts reflecting on memory, for example, in this case. Where attention goes, neural firing flows. That is, you yourself can get your brain to become activated in certain regions and in certain ways. So where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. That is, you literally can change.
change the structural connections in your brain based on what you do with your mind. That's now proven. So when we say, um, hey, take the time to reflect on what happened to you when you were a kid, what you're saying is, hey, take some time to focus attention and stream energy flow through memory systems we'll get into in a moment, because doing that isn't just about recalling the past. It's actually about transforming who you are. Mm. And that's proven. So this is the incredibly great news. With reflection, you actually change the structure of your brain. And one way to think about it is difficult experiences, whether they're different subtle forms of insecurity or pretty intense ones like abuse, they are, in my view, all compromises to integration and you can grow the integrative structures in the brain no matter how old you are so in a book called Mindsight I actually talk about a 92 year old who does this work and he changed so much his wife of 65 years called me up she said what would you do Dr. Dan with Stewart I said what do you mean she goes did you give him a brain transplant <laughs> because he kind of. changed so much oh that's amazing you know so here's the story. So two-year-old doesn't want her dad to help with brushing her teeth. She says, only mommy can help me. Uh, you're not going to help me brush your teeth. So let's do example number one. Example number one is my wife is away. She's you know taking a class or something or working, and I'm alone with my two-year-old daughter. She says, only mommy can help me. Now, my abuse in the past was... One level was emotional abuse. My, let's say, my mother favored my brother over me, and she was, oh, let's make it easier. She favored my sister over me and uh, always liked my sister and always told me I was a bad person. So that would be called emotional abuse. Let's say she even yelled and screamed at me. You might call that verbal abuse. Maybe she even hit me. That would be physical abuse. Perhaps somebody was sexually uh, inappropriate with me. That would be sexual abuse. So Whatever kind of abuse, I've had this abuse that favored my sister over me. I felt no good. I developed this whole feeling of shame, which means I have this heaviness inside of me that I'm no good. And I have what are called implicit memories of the traumatic experience. And what that means is they could be the feelings in my body of being hit, let's say. They could be the emotions of feeling betrayed by my mom or being disfavored or being yelled at and feeling really sad and wishing I had a mom who loved me, all these kinds of intense feelings. Now, with trauma, you have impaired integration. What that means from a memory point of view is I can have all these different feelings I've described be an implicit form only. What that means is they haven't become a part of me saying, oh, yes, when I was a child, my mother favored my sister of her own issues, it really wasn't my problem, but there was a long time when I thought I was bad, but actually I got therapy and I've realized now I'm not bad, and in fact it was her own problem because of her childhood and I forgive her, but it was really a painful childhood I had. That would be someone who made sense of his life. Instead, I've never looked back, I just believe these implicit feelings like I'm bad. So now I'm with my two-year-old daughter, I've not resolved my trauma, my daughter says, only mommy can brush my teeth. So it evokes this thing like one parent is favorite of the other. That setup of having someone tell me I'm not good enough 
activate these implicit memories, and let's say I was beaten as a kid, it's, it's, it's very possible I will hit my daughter because I'm now having the whole implicit memory reactivation of these ways of being disfavored, of being not liked, of being said, I being told I'm not good at what I do, you know, here I'm a dad trying to brush her teeth. And so I could then hit her, right? So I become abusive to my daughter. And if not physically, I can even be emotionally abusive, screaming at her, yelling at her, all this kind of stuff. That's in someone who hasn't resolved the trauma. Think about a person who did resolve it, like I explained, someone who reflects on it, realizes, gosh, you know, it really affected me to have a mother who favored my sister. It was really hard. It wasn't until I got married or maybe I went to a counselor or a therapist or, you know, all sorts of ways you can make sense of what happened to you. And I, and I realize even now with a two-year-old, it's still challenging because when she favors her mother, it reminds me of when my mother favored my sister. And so I have to really realize this is not my mother, this is my daughter, and even though I can feel myself getting that shame feeling again, I realize that's just an old implicit memory, and now I've integrated the implicit memory, which is just in the here and now, with what's called explicit forms, that's literally a form of integration in the brain, so my reflection made this feeling of shame now woven with saying that is something that happened to me in the past, so it's called an explicit autobiographical memory. And I take that now explicit memory, it's now available to be placed into a narrative, so it's called narrative integration, where now what I do is I say, I see in so many ways in my life as an adult, shame has kind of organized what I did and how I responded to people. But now I understand through reflection, through therapy, whatever, through my partner, that I'm actually a good person, but I had a belief I wasn't good that comes from being abused because that actually happened to me. And even though it made no sense that my mother abused me, I can make sense of how it impacted me. And now with my daughter at two, I say, listen, if you really don't want your teeth to be brushed, you know, you'll have that yippy stuff in your teeth. And when mommy comes home, she'll wonder, why didn't you brush your teeth? So I'm going to brush my teeth, you figure out what to do, and I start brushing my teeth, and my daughter grabs a toothbrush and brushes her own teeth. Oh, and it all a, worked out well, and I tell her a bedtime story, she goes to sleep. That's a perfect example. I love the concreteness of that within these broad concepts, and uh, I, I know you include a lot of that sort of thing in the book. I really encourage our listeners to um, make the time and effort to read the book, because it's just enlightening and informative, and I think can really help to stimulate the kind of reflection you're talking about, Dan, and that's something I know well, not only from my work, but because I grew up in a family where there were a lot of traumatic and uh, inappropriate kinds of experiences that I struggled with and, and uh, you know, didn't really fully come to grips with, I think, until I was well into adulthood. Um, but it, again, it's so hopeful that we really can do that and that it doesn't just affect our behavior, but it affects the actual architecture and structure and chemistry of our of our brains, which are just one part of our mind, if I'm kind of summarizing one exactly. of your main points well. So yeah, I, so, right. So when this guy makes sense of his life, he integrates his brain. And the beautiful thing is then the relational part of his mind, his connection with his daughter, remains integrated. Yeah. And then the See? child has the, all the benefits that flow from that, which yeah. you articulated. Everybody's like a win-win situation yeah. all around. It's like, and, and we need to, and this is why I think your, 
your your um, um, broadcasting this is so incredibly important because you know people really want to do the best they can and they don't realize um, that with this science informed very simple not necessarily easy but simple practice of you know making sense of your past you actually can empower your life to become liberated from the prisons of the past it's beautiful mm-hmm. Well, that's a a perfect place to end. I wish we could talk with you for another hour. You're always so interesting, but uh, we really are glad that you could give us the time uh, to talk about this new book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. I strongly recommend it, and um, we hope that you'll be back with us again sometime in the future. Dan, you're always coming up with uh, new and wonderful stuff, so keep us on your list. And I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Aaron. Well, thank you for a very hopeful message um, for our listeners and for us. Again, we've been talking with Daniel Siegel, MD, who is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and author of many books that really help us as uh, professionals and as parents uh, in terms of promoting health and well-being and integration for adults and children alike. Thanks to all of you for tuning in to Mom Enough. I'm Marty with my daughter, Erin and we hope you will tune in again next week when we'll have a whole new topic for you. Take care. If you have concerns about your child's growth and development, please talk to your child's health care provider or call 1-866-693-GROW. That's 1-866-693-4769 to talk to a professional and find out ways in which you can get connected to various resources in Minnesota. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?